When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Today on Something You Should Know, how your smile can change the way people perceive you. Then, rituals. We all have them. They don't really do anything, but they're so important. In fact, as far as we know, there is no culture, whether past or present, that has no rituals. In fact, when we look at our own cultures, we will see that the most important moments of our lives, all of these moments are shrouded in ritual. Also, does eating salt really raise your blood pressure? And the science of exercise. The benefits are greater than you may realize. We focus too much on weight. You know, your health is what really matters. And the reason to exercise uh, is not solely to lose weight. There are so many other benefits of just being fit. Even if you're not losing weight, you're still getting all kinds of wonderful benefits. All this today on Something You Should Know. If you have to hire someone, what's the best way? Referrals? Well, maybe that could work. But just because somebody knows somebody who knows you doesn't necessarily mean they're qualified. Or you could pull out that file of random resumes that came in during the last six months. Maybe there's somebody in there. Maybe. Now, if you're hiring, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. As a business owner, I've found that hiring the right people, well, there's just nothing more important. Don't leave it to chance or a referral or a random resume. Use Indeed. In the minute I've been talking to you, 23 hires were made on Indeed, according to Indeed data worldwide. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash something. Just go to Indeed.com slash something right now and support this show by saying you heard about Indeed on something you should know. Indeed.com slash something. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? Oh, you need Indeed. Something you should know. Fascinating intel, the world's top experts, and practical advice you can use in your life. Today, Something You Should Know with Mike Carruthers. Hi, and welcome to Something You Should Know. We start today with a question. Does smiling make you happier, or does being happy make you smile? Well, clearly being happy makes you smile, But smiling, according to the latest research, might make you a little bit happier, but it's not going to make you a lot happier. Here's what we do know about smiling. Everybody smiles. It is universal. People are born with the ability to smile. They don't copy the expression. Even babies who are born blind smile. Women smile more than men. Younger people smile more than older people. Males with high testosterone smile least of all. 
A smiling person is judged to be more pleasant, attractive, sincere, sociable, and competent than a non-smiling person. Babies reserve a special smile for family members, and a newborn baby shows a preference for a smiling face over a non-smiling face. And that is something you should know. I guess we all have little rituals we take part in. Around the holidays, there are millions of rituals. But all year long, we participate in rituals because, well, actually, I'm not sure why we participate in rituals. I guess it makes us feel good, but there has to be more to it than that. So let's find out why this apparently universal practice of rituals seems ingrained in so much of human behavior. And here to discuss it is Dimitris Zigalatis. He is an anthropologist and cognitive scientist who runs the Experimental Anthropology Lab at the University of Connecticut. He's author of a book called Ritual, How Seemingly Senseless Acts Make Life Worth Living. Hi, Demetrius. Welcome to Something You Should Know. Hi, it's a pleasure to be with you. So what is a ritual as you study it and define it? What, what is it? Rituals are regularly repeated sets of actions that feel special, they're not ordinary, and yet they have either no stated goal, or even when they do have a goal, that goal is not causally related to the actions themselves. I like to give the example of brushing your teeth, which is not a ritual. And the reason it's not a ritual is that it has a, a very specific purpose, and the actions we undertake to achieve that purpose are causally related. So I move my brush up and uh, up and down, and that helps me remove uh, food from my, my teeth, uh, helping me make them clean. Now, if I woke up every morning and I, and I waved my toothbrush in the air with the belief that this will help me clean my teeth, or for that matter, with, without any belief at all, now that would be an example of a ritual. So it's really, it's really something that does nothing, and yet it has meaning anyway. Exactly. And that's, and that's why it's such a fascinating topic to, to study, because people consider their rituals deeply meaningful, and they put a lot of time, resources, and effort into those rituals. Some of the rituals that I studied even involve uh, very painful, even excruciating things like walking on fire, having your body pierced with needles and skewers. And people consider these rituals very, very important in their lives. And yet, when I ask them why they perform these rituals, and I've asked hundreds, if not thousands of people that question, they have a very hard time explaining why they're important. Most of the time, they'll just look at me and they'll go, what do you mean? These are our traditions. That's what we do. That's who we are. Does everyone, or, or at least every culture, have rituals? Has, has there ever been a culture that just didn't have any? As far as we know, there is no culture, whether past or present, that has no rituals. In fact, when we look at our own cultures, we will see that the most important moments of our lives, whether these are personal moments, uh, like birthdays and weddings, or collective moments, like presidential inaugurations, all of these moments are shrouded in ritual. Why is it so universal? If, if in fact, rituals don't really do anything, why are they so important to everybody? This is the big question that my research has been asking. Now, anthropologists have long pointed out that 
rituals, although they have no practical impact on the world, um, that is not to say that they have no impact at all. So they've pointed out that rituals can have important psychological and social effects. Uh, but these theories remained untested for a very long time. And it's only in recent years that we were able to put them to the test and, and bring scientific measurements into anthropological research in order to be able to understand what these rituals actually do for us. And what we're finding out is that they can play very important functions for us. They help us find comfort, they help us find connection and meaning in life, and they help shape our sense of who we are as, as a person and as a member of the various groups that we belong to. There are rituals, though, that I can think of, pretty benign rituals, but rituals nonetheless of, you know, rubbing a rabbit's foot or, you know, for, for good luck kind of thing. And it doesn't work, yet people still do it. And even and, and if it did work, then it wouldn't be a ritual, would it? True. But even those actions that, that seem utterly pointless, uh, we are finding that they might have important functions as well, important psychological functions. Like? For example, you, you mentioned uh, good luck rituals. We're finding that if, if you were to, to search for places or situations in which individual ritualization takes place, things like superstitions, for example, the best places to look for that would be things like a casino or a sports stadium or perhaps a hospital or war zones, all of these situations, that's where we see that people spontaneously engage in all of those ritualized actions. And what all of these situations have in common is that um, they involve a lot of uncertainty and a lot of anxiety. So anthropologists have theorized a long time ago that perhaps engaging in rituals is an attempt to overcome this anxiety. Now, how exactly this works, we didn't know. Recent research uh, provides evidence about how this exactly might work. And that evidence is? For example, in my, in my own research that I've done with my colleagues, when we bring people into a lab and we stress them up, we see that their uh, behavior becomes more ritualized. Their movements become more repetitive. And we take this research into the real world and we go into uh, religious temples and we, we measure people's anxiety before and after they perform their cultural rituals. And we see that performing those rituals helps them reduce anxiety. We can see this in their heart rate variability, in their cortisol levels, and uh, even at the subjective level, they feel calmer. How does exactly, that exactly happen? In other uh, studies in the laboratory, we see that when people engage in those repetitive movements that are very common in rituals, even if they're stripped of any kind of meaning, that in itself helps them deal with anxiety. And the reason for that is that it is related to the way our brain works. Our brain doesn't just passively absorb stimuli. It makes active predictions about the state of the world all of the time. Before I even finish the sentence that I'm about to say, you have certain expectations about what's going to follow. Our brain does this in all kinds of domains. And when we don't have this ability to make predictions, when we don't know what's about to come, uh, that's when we feel stressed. And that's where ritual comes in. Because if ritual is anything, it is structure, it is order. It is, ritual is very predictable. When we engage in a, in a familiar ritual, we know exactly what's going to happen. We know exactly when it is going to happen. And we know exactly how it's going to happen. And this gives our brain 
a sense of control. And it doesn't really matter whether this sense of control is real or illusory. All that matters is that it actually works. And this is what we're finding in our studies. People who engage in those repetitive rituals, uh, they're better able to cope with anxiety. But you mentioned at the beginning here that you study rituals of, of cultures that, that do incredibly painful things as rituals. How does, that, how does that help your anxiety? Seems like if you came at me with a needle, I don't think I'd be less anxious. I'd be more anxious. That is an excellent point. In fact, some of the rituals that I've studied, they, they involve unbearable pain. Some of the ceremonies that are studied in the, on the island of Mauritius, for example, they are Hindu ceremonies that involve piercing the body with hundreds of needles and even skewers and rods through the cheeks and walking barefooted on the burning asphalt under the midsummer tropical sun. And all that is happening as people are carrying these very large uh, shrines that can, can weigh 100 pounds. And, and when they reach the, their destination, which is six hours later, they have to climb this hill carrying these burdens up to the to the top of the hill where the the temple of muruga uh, lies so this is really a, a full day of self-imposed torture and even in this context we have done studies that show that they uh, might offer tangible benefits to those people who do them so in the context of these rituals, we, we look at people's physiological reactions. And of course, we see that during that day, they're extremely stressed, orders of magnitude more stressed than they would be on their everyday, in their everyday life. And we see this in things like their electrodermal activity, so their, their skin conductance, which is a measure of stress. Now, when we measure the health outcomes of those rituals, we see that a month later, those who have engaged in those rituals, uh, they have better subjective well-being and quality of life than those who didn't. And within the group that does the ritual, we see that the more they suffer on the day, the better, uh, the more pronounced these effects. Is there any indication, though, that someone who, say, pierces themselves with sharp needles or, or you know, walks on hot coals and does these very painful things, that they get more of an internal benefit from those rituals because they're so painful and involved, compared to someone who just, you know, rubs a rabbit's foot because that's their ritual? Or, or can you get the same from any ritual if you believe you get the same from any ritual? Yes, and, and, and this, here's where meaning comes in. We know from psychological research that we intuitively attribute meaning to effort. So if you think of some of the moments in our lives that we consider to be the most uh, important to us. And those are the, the things that fundamentally shaped us as a person. So they changed our, our personal autobiographical narrative. Those moments will uh, very often include uh, times of suffering. The time perhaps we, we climbed a mountain or the time we uh, a, a woman might have given birth, the time we survived a, a car accident, even some of these traumatic moments. We come to consider them significant in our personal narrative. We attribute meaning to them. And the fact that rituals involve this type of suffering that, at least in the rituals that I study, is self-imposed. So the fact that you chose to do this ritual, the, the fact that you chose to put so much effort into it, also makes it a much more meaningful experience in, in our mind and in our memory. 
Rituals is our topic today, and I'm speaking with Dimitris Zigalatis. He is an anthropologist and author of the book Ritual, How Seemingly Senseless Acts Make Life Worth Living. A shout-out to Claritin for supporting this episode and providing us with samples. You see, for as long as I can remember, I have had to deal with seasonal allergies. Stuffy nose, watery eyes, the whole deal. And the worst for me is it messes up my sleep. I wake up because I can't breathe right. And during the day, well, you know, if I'm working and I'm all stuffed up, then my voice sounds weird and this is how I make my living. Luckily, for those of us who live with the symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin Clear with Claritin D. I use it, and if you struggle with allergies, you should too. Designed for serious allergy sufferers, Claritin D has two powerful ingredients in just one pill that relieve your allergy symptoms and decongest your nose so you can breathe better. I've been using Claritin D for years because, well, just it takes care of the problem. Ready to live as if you don't have allergies? It's time to live Claritin Clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin Clear. Use as directed. This podcast is sponsored by Monarch Money. Are you saving to reach your financial goals? Reaching those goals isn't just about getting more money, but by managing what you have. And the best way to manage your money? Monarch Money. Monarch Money is a new kind of finance app that's intuitive, powerful, ad-free, and takes the headaches out of budgeting. Try it free when you go to monarchmoney.com podcast. Monarch puts all your accounts, investments, transactions, and finances at your fingertips. With a complete view of your finances, you'll gain insights on your spending and find new ways to save. Plus, Monarch lets you customize your dashboard, collaborate with your partner, set custom budgets and goals, and track your progress toward them. See why Mint users are turning to Monarch Money and loving it, and why the Wall Street Journal named Monarch Money the best budgeting app overall. Get a 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com podcast. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H money.com podcast for your free trial. monarchmoney.com podcast. So, Demetrius, in these cultures where they engage in these elaborate rituals that are very painful, I mean, doesn't anyone ever stop and go, hey, wait, wait a minute, wait, why, why are we doing this? Couldn't we do something else that's perhaps a little less painful or, or do they just, we just do it. it just, it's just what we do. That's what people say when I ask them why they perform their, their rituals. The most common answer I get is that it's just what we do. So as human beings, we, we tend to, uh, to do as the Romans do. We, um, and this is very important for us because we are a hyper-social species. So most of the things we learn in life, they actually come from, uh, from other people, whether it's through intentional uh, instruction or just by observing them. So we have evolved to, um, to imitate what others around us do and especially imitate what um, people of our group do and and particularly influential individuals in that group. So if everybody in your group does it, if the most prestigious individuals in your group do it, then you end up doing it as well. And by doing this, you also reap the benefits of doing it. Uh, we see, for example, that uh, people who engage in very painful rituals, that uh, 
gives a boost in their reputation. So there, there are studies conducted in India by an anthropologist called Ellie Power, and she's finding that performing these very painful rituals just once a year is the equivalent of going to the temple every single week in terms of how you're perceived by others. People who, who perform these rituals uh, more frequently or who pay a higher price to perform them, they are seen as uh, more trustworthy, they're, they're better able to call upon others when they need things like borrowing money or help uh, with uh, taking care of their children and so on and so forth. So those social benefits are very real. But those social benefits are not why they do it. Or is it? At, at least it seems that at, at a reflective conscious level, they are not why they do it. So people, even as people recognize that by taking part in that ritual, you feel bonded with each other. I don't think anybody has ever told me, I do this ritual to boost my status. Now, at the back of people said that might be uh, there, of course. And, and at some level, are conscious that by virtue of engaging those rituals, uh, that changes the way people see us. But I don't think that's the primary motivation. I think the primary motivation is just to fit in. Well, getting away from the painful rituals, because we don't really have a whole lot of those here in in the West. I mean, it doesn't seem like that's all that popular, that our rituals tend to be much more benign and, and you know, like and this time of year, Christmas has a lot of rituals where mm-hmm. people do things and decorate in certain ways that they don't do any other time of year because it's Christmas and they do it because that's what we do, but also because I think it makes people feel good. Absolutely. I tend to see rituals as social technologies. They are successful social technologies because they're able to harness all kinds of different mechanisms, the uh, psychological mechanisms. So it is not just pain and suffering that they can recruit in order to make an occasion seem more uh, special. Uh, they can recruit things like emotional arousal. They can recruit things like sensory pageantry. And that's where uh, what you see with holiday celebrations. They're, they're bursting with pageantry. They have, they're full of um, colors and, and smells and sometimes literally bells and whistles. So they stimulate all of your senses. And because the most important moments of our lives uh, are related to extravagant ceremonies, weddings, graduation ceremonies, birthday parties, Whenever we see an extravagant ceremony, immediately in our brain, that that signals that this is an important moment. And this is an important moment. This is a moment to pay attention to. This is a moment to look forward to. This is a moment to to fully uh, embrace. Is there any sense that rituals are on the rise or on the decline or it's pretty steady or does it go in waves or anything like that? The way I see it is that ritual has always been part of our nature, and it's just as much a part of our nature today as it has always been. Sometimes we might get the sense that ritual is in decline, just because in parts of the world, in, in the West in particular, we see that membership in uh, at least the major religious organizations is declining. But that is not to say that people are abandoning ritual altogether. In fact, what I see is that the more people um, stop performing some of the more traditional rituals, per- perhaps related to, to the church in the American setting, 
the more they seek the same kinds of experiences in other domains of life. So you can find collective rituals, for example, in the context of uh, uh, musical concerts or sports stadiums or events like Burning Man or Coachella. You can find them in politics. You can find them in all of our secular institutions. You can find them in the courtroom. You can find them uh, in the university graduation ceremonies and so on and so forth. So ritual is, has always been there and it's still there. The, the, the context in which it is performed might uh, often change, but our need for ritual remains the same. And so many of those rituals that you just mentioned in the courtroom and at graduation, I'm thinking of, of those kind of things that, you know, why do we do them? Well, that's just what we do. It's, it's just part of the, it's part of the ceremony. It's part of the pageantry. It's just what we do. You're, like you're almost not supposed to question it. That is true. That, that that is that is what it feels like to to people. It's just we we're not supposed to question uh, certain traditions, um, and and ritual traditions are are particularly um, the kinds of traditions that feel this way. There are studies that actually show that when you suggest to people that certain of their most uh, ritualized um, public holidays, things like Thanksgiving, if you were to change those holidays, people get morally appalled by this. They find this offensive that somebody would suggest making changes to those rituals. They're not supposed to change, even, even as they do change, because Thanksgiving actually in the past uh, was moved. It was moved by a week earlier so that the, um, the holiday period would be extended and, and people would spend more money. And people um, didn't like that. People didn't like that. Most states actually refused to enforce this. And recently, so now nobody remembers this anymore. Um, but recently there was a study that asked people this question. How would you feel if, if the government wanted to move Thanksgiving by a week? And, and people really felt that this would be offensive. You know, as you're talking, I'm thinking, you know, back to 2020 when we were all locked down. And one of the things that happened was that for the class of 2020, it, at every grade level, at every school, there was no graduation. And people were talking about that, that how, how sorry we felt for members of the class of 2020 because there would be no graduation, which is just a ritual. It, it doesn't do anything other than recognize a, you know, a passage in life. But people felt really bad about that because... Graduation is so important. It's very important, and we know this. We know we all we've all heard people. Uh, at least I've heard people say that uh, because their university didn't didn't have a graduation ceremony, they felt that their degree was diminished. And we saw people go to great lengths to to offer this ritual experience to to the students. So, in India, there was a university that created avatars for every student and and had a virtual ceremony and invited uh, famous guest speakers for the commencement address. And they had their own avatars. In other parts of the, of the world, we saw that schools might have socially distant graduation ceremonies in all sorts of innovative ways, including a, somewhere a, a ski lift, so they could, they could maintain social distance. <laughs> so our institutions uh, recognize this need for, for ritual. Well, after listening to you, I think it's clear we all recognize that need for ritual. It's important to all of us to one degree or another. D 
Dimitris Zigalatis has been my guest. He is an anthropologist and cognitive scientist who runs the Experimental Anthropology Lab at the University of Connecticut. And the name of his book is Ritual, How Seemingly Senseless Acts Make Life Worth Living. And there's a link to that book in the show notes. Thanks, Demetrius. Thank you, Mike. It's been a real pleasure. As a listener to Something You Should Know, I can only assume that you are someone who likes to learn about new and interesting things and bring more knowledge to work for you in your everyday life. I mean, that's kind of what Something You Should Know was all about. And so I want to invite you to listen to another podcast called TED Talks Daily. Now, you know about TED Talks, right? Many of the guests on Something You Should Know have done TED Talks. Well, you see, TED Talks Daily is a podcast that brings you a new TED Talk every weekday in less than 15 minutes. Join host Elise Hugh. She goes beyond the headlines so you can hear about the big ideas shaping our future. Learn about things like sustainable fashion, embracing your entrepreneurial spirit, the future of robotics, and so much more. Like I said, if you like this podcast, something you should know, I'm pretty sure you're going to like TED Talks Daily. And you get TED Talks Daily wherever you get your podcasts. You often hear phrases like, the human body was designed to move, exercise is good for you. And you can often hear people talk about how much they enjoy exercising. But for a lot of other people, exercise is hard. It's hard to start exercising, and even harder to stick with it. So why is it something supposedly so necessary and natural for our health is such a challenge to do? Here to discuss that and to offer some suggestions on making exercise less of a struggle is Daniel Lieberman, professor of biological sciences and a professor of the Department of Human Evolutionary Biology at Harvard University. He's author of a book called Exercised, Why Something We Never Evolved to Do is Healthy and Rewarding. Hi, Daniel. Welcome. Thank you. I'm a pleasure to be here. So why is it, if if exercise is so critical for our well-being, why is it so hard to do routinely? Well, that's a good question. And to understand the answer to that, it's important to make a distinction between physical activity, which is moving, right? Doing anything, right? You know, sweeping the floor, buying groceries, you name it. And exercise, excuse me, uh, which is a discretionary, voluntary physical activity for the sake of health and fitness. And we evolved to be physically active, but we didn't evolve to exercise. And uh, the reason for that is that until recently, people had to be very physically active, but they're also energy limited. And um, and when you're energy limited, doing unnecessary discretionary physical activity uh, is crazy, right? Like, so for example, I ran five miles this morning, uh, which cost me about 500 calories. You know, when you're struggling to get enough calories, wasting 500 calories on a completely useless run in the morning is a really terrible idea. And so it's an instinct not to, you know, it's an instinct to avoid unnecessary physical activity, which is exactly what phys- exercise is. So this is really all part of our mechanism for survival, right? Life is really just about, you know, food in, babies out, right? And we and the reason we eat food is for nutrients and calories, and calories is a unit of energy. So so <clears throat> until recently, people struggled to get enough calories. Um, it takes, you know, about two to 3,000 calories to 
you know, to run a human body for a given day. And, and if you're a farmer or, you know, or, or a hunter gatherer, you know, getting those calories is, is not easy. And, um, and, you know, you also have to pay for the, pay for your children's calorie, you know, caloric needs, um, you know, their brains and all that sort of stuff. And, and so you're, you know, you're struggling to get enough calories and, um, and so spending it on a, you know, treadmill to spend even more calories, right, is a, is a very odd modern thing. And yet, there are plenty of people who do exercise and claim to love it. You ran five miles today. You didn't do it because you hate it. You did it because either you see the reward in it or you get pleasure from it or both. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a paradox, right? Um, we evolved to be physically active and we have all kinds of mechanisms that reward it, right? So one of the reasons I exercise every day is that I have a, I'm addicted to it. I have a dopamine uh, you know, dopamine is the molecule of more. It's the chemical, you know, the neurotransmitter, which says, do it again, right? And when I, uh, I have lots of dopamine receptors in my brain that are thirsty and hungry for more dopamine. And um, and when I exercise, they get that dopamine hit. And if I don't exercise, they're, they make me crabby and unpleasant. But if you, the thing is, if you're unfit um, and or uh, struggling with your weight, um, those dopamine receptors are going to be fewer in number and possibly even impaired in their function. And so people who are, aren't already exercising a lot or being physically active don't get the same reward. So it's a, it's a very strange mechanism. And the reason that, you know, we want, you might want to ask, you know, why, why is that work the way it does is that in the past, nobody ever was physically inactive. That, that just wasn't possible to, you know, to be active every day in order to hunt and gather or farm or whatever. And so we never evolved to cope with um, with a persistent physical inactivity. I remember speaking with you some years ago, and I remember you telling me about other cultures where, you know, exercise is like, why would you do that? To, to tell that story. I was doing research in, um, in, uh, in actually northern Mexico among the Tarahumara, uh, also who call themselves the Raramari. And, um, and, you know, they're famous for long distance running, right? They have these incredible races where they sometimes run, you know, 50, 60 miles, right? And, um, and I was being a good anthropologist and I was going around and talking to folks and, and, um, and asking them about their running and, and, uh, and about their training. And of course, the idea of, you know, training is when you like run to get, you know, prepare yourself for a race. And, and when I was asking all these folks about training, like the word didn't even exist in their language. I was working through a translator. And, and so I was like explaining how, you know, this guy, you know, here he, you know, he, he, the translator was explaining that I like ran every day in order to get ready for races. And the guy looked at me and, and I even, I didn't even need a translator to figure this out. And he said, why would anybody run if they didn't have to? And that for me, actually, that was the beginning of the book because I suddenly had this realization that my exercise habits are really weird. For them, yeah. But maybe that explains why exercise is so hard because, because to do it artificially, to exercise for the sake of exercise is not something humans did. We exercise to survive and to thrive, but not to exercise just to exercise. I, I don't imagine too many, I don't imagine any other animals exercise just for the heck of it. Well, it's not entirely true. So there's a very famous paper, one of my favorite papers, let me put it that way. Um, there's a biologist in the Netherlands who, who puts mice on treadmills and, and she noticed that she had mice in her backyard. And one day she thought, you know, what, what, what happens if I put a, 
put a tread, you know, a little, a little running wheel in my backyard. So she put a running wheel in her backyard and put some cameras on it, night cameras, went to bed. In the morning when she woke up, she, she looked at the camera feed and to her astonishment, wild mice in her backyard had gotten on this little running wheel and had run for a while. In fact, other animals had gotten on it too. I think a frog got on it, and even a slug had gotten on the tre- on the on the on the wheel. So, you know, other animals do physical activity, and why they do it, you know, well, nobody knows, right? Um, and mice are really interesting because mice will naturally run, you know, several kilometers, right? They're a little bit unusual, but uh, it's certainly part of their behavior. They're wired to do it. But the vast majority of animals uh, avoid unnecessary physical activity, and humans are, are no exception. Except we now live in this very strange modern world where we've got elevators and shopping carts and you know electric can openers and you know, you name it right and and so basically now we don't really need to be physically active anymore but yet our bodies um, require physical activity in order to to turn on a whole variety of repair and maintenance mechanisms that that keep us healthy and so we've had to create in the modern industrial or post-industrial world, this really weird behavior called exercise. Which people resist like crazy. Yeah, and there's nothing wrong with them, right? It's normal. I mean, I think one of the problems with, with, um, with the way we think about exercise is that we make people exercise about exercise. We make them confused and anxious and, and feel bullied and shamed about it, right? But it's a fundamental instinct not to, not to do physical activity unless it's rewarding or necessary. And, and so we need to be more compassionate towards our our fellow human beings who are struggling uh, to you know do something really weird like get on a treadmill and you know run for five miles and get absolutely nowhere um, in a really kind of you know let's face it a very unpleasant kind of context. Is it that exercise is so good for you, or or movement is so good for you, or lack of movement is so bad for you? Aha, uh-huh. that's exactly the point, right? Which is that. We evolved to be physically active, you know, not a crazy amount, you know, two two to three hours a day, basically. But it, that's a normal part of our environment, right? And when you remove that, then all of a sudden, all kinds of natural mechanisms which our bodies mount get turned off. And so, and so, uh, we often say that exercise is medicine, but a really more uh, accurate statement is that the lack of physical activity. Uh, is really uh, makes us more vulnerable to disease and 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 accelerates the aging process. So so exercise isn't really actually medicine. It's the lack of exercise um, that that causes problems. And yet, when people exercise, when they you know, especially when they exercise a lot, they get injured, they get hurt, uh, they get chronic you know joint problems and all that. So 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 that may be going too far. Yeah, I mean, I think we sometimes exaggerate that stuff. I mean, look, if if running was that dangerous, you know, then there like, be no runners left, right? You know, I think we sometimes exaggerate injuries and that sort of thing. I mean, it is true that people exercise has trade-offs. Everything has trade-offs. There are costs and benefits to every, everything. Uh, and so injury is always a potential there. But again, remember, our ancestors weren't like running marathons. You know, they were, you know, occasionally running. They were mostly walking. They were carrying they were doing things that don't cause injury. A lot of the stuff that we do today that causes injury is because you know you get weekend warriors who aren't really all that fit. They're you know they're 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 not you know prepared for the stresses that their body um, then encounters, and then of course they overdo it, and then they get injured. But that's um, but that's again a kind of weird modern way in which we exercise. 
And so what is your general prescription for exercise? I think we can say a few things. The first is that always some is better than none. You know, if you just get just a little bit of physical activity every day and you just look at the at the outcome of that, it has enormous effects on people's health. It increases people's longevity, it decreases their vulnerability to a wide range of diseases, and that curve continues, right? So, for example, on average for most people if they exercise about 20 minutes a day, which is 150 minutes a week. And it can be just like walking. It doesn't have to be, you know, running. That can decrease your overall um, life history, you know, your your longevity by about 30% um, and reduce your vulnerability to a wide range of diseases enormously. And then the con- curve continues to go down and then eventually it kind of tails off. Um, and so if you do anything more than an hour a day, you're not going to get any more benefit from doing an hour and 10 minutes a day or two hours a day or whatever. So so basically, the answer is that some is better than none. More yields greater benefits, but those benefits begin to tail off. Um, and then, of course, there's variation in the kind of exercise that you do. I mean, you know, are you running? Are you walking? Are you doing strength training, you know, weights, etc.? And the answer is, you know, I can mix it up, right? You know? It's good to do a little bit of strength training, especially as you age, but it's also, you know, aerobic physical activity is really important for kind of your base core, your 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 fitness, you know, some kind of mix is always kind of important, but there's no one prescription, there never will be. But does, you know, you go to any suburban <clears throat> town around the world and, you know, four or five o'clock in the afternoon, you see lots of people out walking that are clearly not athletes. They're just, you know, people out for their afternoon walk. And my guess is that most of them think that they're walking because that's good for them. Is there some real benefit to that walk? Or is that, like you say, some is better than nothing, but how much good is it doing? Oh, I mean, absolutely, there's a benefit to it. There is no question about it. I mean, if you look at, I mean, there are... There may be a hundred studies by now, epidemiological studies, which show a dose-response curve to like, like, for example, steps per day and various kinds of outcomes like cardiovascular disease or diabetes or just you know how long you live. And so, for example, let's take steps per day. You know, for most studies, if you look at that curve, the more steps you take, the the better the outcome, up until about seven or eight thousand steps a day, and then the curve begins to start leveling off. Again, these are big epidemiological studies. There's a variation from person to person. But sure, um, there's no question that this physical activity has important benefits. And and importantly, we understand a lot of the mechanisms behind it, right? Because when you're physically active, your your body produces antioxidants, your body produces enzymes that that repair proteins and repair your DNA. Your body produces all kinds of um turns on all kinds of genes that that, you know work on your brain and your your liver and you know i mean every system of the body pretty much is affected your 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 immune system people who exercise 150 minutes a week were shown in a study to be 2.5 times less likely to die of covid um this is before the before the vaccines uh, were were produced uh so it affects every system of your body um and so uh yeah those folks who are out there walking are doing doing themselves a real benefit absolutely I remember hearing uh, some time ago, and I don't remember where it was from, that that there is a difference between exercising like on a treadmill versus exercising out in nature or something. That that is there is. I mean, it seems to me that exercise <laughs> is exercise. 
Well, for one, exercising on a treadmill is boring, in my opinion. You know, I mean, I, I you know, if you you, you want to, I mean, I, I have a hard time exercising. And I put people on treadmills for a living, right? I just find them um, really hard to do. But apart from that, um, there are, if like, if you just compare running on a treadmill versus running over ground, um, the treadmill is a little bit different because after all, the ground is moving underneath you. Uh, so it's actually pushing you in a slightly different way. So a lot of people, for example, put the treadmill at a at a one percent incline to equal the, the to kind of compensate for the fact that the treadmill belt is moving. Um, of course, the other thing that's different about the treadmill is that every step is exactly the same. Whereas when you're out in the real world, you know, every time you land, your foot's at a slightly different angle. There are you know rocks and inclines and and you know and turns and all that sort of stuff. So you know, I think treadmill running is you know, makes people much more susceptible to repetitive stress injuries. But, you know, if you like running on a treadmill, if you like listening to a podcast on a treadmill or, you know, watching a movie or whatever, all power to you. That's, there's nothing wrong with it. I think, you know, I think we should be, you know, whatever works for people is, is good. But for whatever reason, people try to exercise and fail and give up. And well, I think I, I know the reason. And I think it has to do with, the failure to lose weight, that people think they're going to lose a lot of weight when they exercise. And when they don't, they say, well, see, and they quit. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think part of the problem is that we've tied so much. I mean, we just, we focus too much on weight. I think, you know, your health is what really matters. And, and the, the reason to exercise uh, is not solely to lose weight. There are so many other benefits of just being fit. And so, even if you're not losing weight, you're still getting all kinds of wonderful benefits. And um, and look about thinking about you know it doesn't have to be exercise in the gym. Like how many how many people think of dancing as exercise? But you know, go dancing with some friends for you know people often will dance for hours. We don't think of that as exercise, but it's darn good for you in all kinds of different ways. Or playing a game of soccer, or playing a game of tennis, or going for a walk, or hiking with your with a friend, or something. You know, the point is that physical activity has all kinds of benefits, and weight loss is a component, but it's not the be all and end all. And what we should really be is promoting people's health and well being. And if that helps them lose weight, that's fine. But it's not the only reason to do it. So give people some some motivation. Give people a reason to do this because, you know, it's going to be the start of the year. People are thinking, ah, I need to exercise more, but they, they probably won't. So how about a little motivational talk? Average everyday human beings are really extraordinary athletes and and can do amazing things. Um, and, and, um, and you don't need to run a marathon. You don't need to, you know, be able to run to the top of the – you know, the, you know, the Empire State Building or, or, or whatever to get the benefits of just moderate levels of physical activity. And it, and it, and it affects every single system of your body. It affects your immune system. It affects your, your brain. It affects your metabolism and prevent, helps prevent diabetes and heart disease. You know, we talk about, you know, breast cancer, cancer, for example, right? The number one cause of death in the United States is heart disease. The number two cause of death in the United States are cancer. And both of them are majorly affected by physical activity. Women who exercise 150 minutes a day or, or more um, can have 30 to 50% lower lifetime risk of breast cancer. How many people know that, right? And we're not talking a huge amount of, of physical activity. 
Um, physical activity is the number one way to help prevent uh, heart disease. If you care about Alzheimer's or dementia, again, physical nothing, nothing comes remotely as close to physical activity as a as a preventative form of Alzheimer's. Now, will it guarantee that you won't get Alzheimer's? Guarantee that you won't get heart disease? Guarantee that you won't get cancer? No, of course not. But nothing really comes as close, and you get all kinds of other mental health benefits. You get you know, a dopamine reward, you get serotonin reward, you get all your brain turns on all these wonderful chemicals that that affect mental health. Uh, physical activity has been shown to be as effective as any known medication for, for, for uh, treating depression. Now, again, will it mean that you'll never get depression? Of course not. But all of these things together mean that, you know, there's really a lot of positives. Um, but at the same time, I think we should also acknowledge you know, it's also completely normal and natural to avoid it because after all, we evolved to have to work and have to do all kinds of stuff, but we also evolved to take it easy when we could. And so our inclinations to avoid physical activity are also deep and innate and normal and functional. And we shouldn't shame people and make them feel like they're somehow they're lazy for wanting to take the escalator instead of the stairs. Well, I think that's a really important message because in, in all the talk of the importance of exercise and you're supposed to move and you need more activity is this idea that if you don't, there's something wrong with you, that you are lazy or there, there's just, you know, there's something wrong with you. And clearly that's not the case. I've been talking to Daniel Lieberman. He's a professor of biological sciences and a professor of the Department of Human Evolutionary Biology at Harvard. The name of his book is Exercised, Why Something We Never Evolved to Do is Healthy and Rewarding. And there's a link to that book in the show notes. Everyone has heard that eating too much salt can raise your blood pressure. And that statement is actually based on research that was done in the 1940s that showed that people who had high blood pressure could lower it by reducing their intake of salt. As a result, it became this common advice to reduce salt in your diet to control your blood pressure. But in the last 25 years or so, research has shown that it's not just eating a lot of salt that can elevate your blood pressure. It's also not eating enough potassium. When you eat salt, it increases the amount of sodium in your blood, which causes you to retain water, which increases your blood volume, and therefore your blood pressure. Potassium regulates your blood pressure by stimulating your kidneys to excrete more sodium, thereby reducing blood volume and decreasing your blood pressure. So, if you don't want to cut down on salt, you can simply increase the amount of potassium you consume. Foods high in potassium include spinach, broccoli, and beans. And that is something you should know. Hey, would you do me a favor and just take a moment, wherever you're listening to this podcast, there's a place probably where you can leave a review, or at least a rating. And just take a, just a few words would be great, to, and preferably a five-star review would be great. It really does help us in ways we, we don't completely understand, but it really does help us. So please, a rating and review would be appreciated. I'm Mike Carruthers. Thanks for listening today to Something You Should Know.
The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.